Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hola, socios. Hola, equipo. My name is Neil. I'm Liam. This is John Norberger from Kansas City, Missouri, USA. Corey Field near Brisbane in Queensland. Edinburgh. Barcelona. And I'm a socio. I'm a socio. I'm a socio of the big interview. My name is Neil. I'm originally from Scotland, but now living in Barcelona. Hey, why did I become a socio? Well, you could reference uh, Mr. Hunter's knowledge and access to some great football characters, but I'm going to go for his exceptional use of swear words. He really seems to strike the right chord. They're not overused. <laughs> As a Scotsman, it's something I uh, really value. My favourite interview of the season, I'm going to go for Kevin Kilban. He came across as a really open, honest, funny and down-to-earth guy. In general, seemed like the sort of person you could happily sit down, have a pint with him and just listen to his stories. Full back page, I'm Neil White and this is The Big Inside View, the podcast where big interview listeners get a close-up look at Spanish football from Graham Hunter, who will join us shortly. Before that, I want to say hello everyone and how are you? It's been a while and I also want to tell you about Graham Hunter's week. Although we're looking forward to El Clasico on Sunday, we're recording Wednesday morning. We know not what occurred when Barcelona met Internazionale in the Champions League. Graham will attend that match in about oh, 12 hours. And that would make it an exciting week for most of us, right? Piffle for Graham, who does such things frequently and with no little style. However, tomorrow, Thursday, sees the premiere of Take the Ball, Pass the Ball. Now, this is a documentary Graham's produced in association with Zoom Sport and with Universal Pictures. It's a film based on the book Barca, the making of the greatest team in the world, which we at Backpage worked with Graham on. The film features Messi and Xavi and Puyo and Piqué and Thierry Henry and just about every participant and protagonist in Pep Guardiola's Barcelona era, 2008 to 2012. So Graham, briefly, before we start on the Classico, tell us about the film. Neil, briefly, before we start on anything, which we worked on with Graham. Dear listeners, Martin and Neil proposed the idea, bent my arm up my back, persuaded me, which everybody who's ever known me and any of you who have to listen to me will understand is extraordinarily difficult. And so was corralling me into using the right words. Um, so was editing, which Neil came up to Beltside to do as we... I don't know if we call that a sort of retreat, do we? Can we call it a, a retreat? Yes, there was something monastic about the whole procedure. Something monastic, that's very good. 
And there was a lot of etymological differentiation that went on. <laughs> and we, we, nine months later, we produced a book. The absolute fundamental about all of this is that I'd been a witness. I fluked into a city where I had a slightly emotional tie because Steve Archibald once played for Aberdeen and once played for Barcelona. And I turned up at a time when things happened. And three people came to me and said, what are you going to do about it? Uh, you and Martin, and, and then subsequently for the film, Duncan McMath. And at least for my taste, and, and I'm explaining this to those who are listening to this podcast, the cleverness, the wit, stems from having an idea and seeing it through. And therefore, I still regard myself as really only somebody who's chronicled the best football I've ever seen and, and I'm essaying an argument that maybe it's the greatest that's been played. A combination of all the players, all the coaches, the directors, the president, the, the people who made the football that was thought of, dreamed, inculcated, trained, developed and then finally played in those Guardiola years because obviously the the gestation, the idea, the philosophy of Johan Cruyff and those disciples who then ensured that it was implanted and not lost over the, the, the barren years. They, plus you, Martin and Duncan, seem to me to have been the greater part of the reason that, that both the book, The Making of the Greatest Team in the World, and now this Take the Ball, Pass the Ball film exist. And, uh, you know, I, I won't lose sight of that. And people, if they're, if they're finding out about this project, should be aware of that too. You did the reporting for the book around sort of 2010, 2011, and then you've gone back for the film to talk to these guys sort of six, seven years later, which is a long time in a footballer's career. And I wonder, yeah. have you noticed any changes in how these guys view that time, those four years under, under Pep? Yeah, yeah. It, it really helped, Neil. It was really very interesting. You're right. The, at the time, it, it, it was when you came to me with the idea, I, I traditionally really had been reporting on Barcelona's peaks and troughs for eight or nine years in the city around the club then. And therefore, I had a stockpile of ammunition. But there are little um, bits like, in those days, it was pretty regular that Xavi or Dani Alves or Victor Valdez would speak in the mixed zone. So you could stop them and you could get time with them. And some of them gave me individual time for the book, as did some of the directors and the president. And... Um, you know, I'd had two one-on-one interviews with Pep Guardiola prior to the Champions League final. So the book stemmed from um, a catalogue of information, um, unique interviews held for the book, and snatched opportunities with players one-on-one that weren't in form or sit down, yes, I'll help you with the book, but were more like, yeah, I know you, okay, we'll talk to you. And therefore, you would get gems. I mean, two or three of the gems um, from from my taste for the book would be Chavi and me inside Wembley, just having come out of the dressing room with the cup on the night of the 2011 final and the little exchange we had about the, the, the pattern of play for the first goal, the opening goal for Barcelona, and the way that he stopped short, stopped dead and turned to me. I'm like, wow, phew, I really like the way you look at your football. You really you know enjoy your football, don't you? And, uh, so fine, that that's good, and it's a nice anecdote to tell. It'll, it's embellished in my soul, you know. That will 
no matter what happens from now on until the end of my life, that um, you know that that will remain on the pantheon. It was an incredible, um, uplifting, uh, happy uh, moment that you you can never imagine happening to you, or tinier things like just throwing a phrase at Danny Alves, the most ordinary phrase in the world, in a mix zone after a Champions League game with him wearing, I don't know, brogues and star-studded trousers. Dude and knows how to dress. Gold lame smoking jacket. The dude does indeed. <laughs> he's been sending me messages this week and he's still very, very funny, even on Twitter. Um, uh, Danny, what is it that, um, you know... I thought, was it Xavi we were talking about or Leo Messi we were talking about? And I just threw him a, a question about, and he, you and me, we live on Earth, he's from another planet, comes back at you with a little impish wink from Danny and you laugh, you record it, you put it in the book. Great. Several years later, two things, two really big things have happened. One, the majority of them, particularly those who are playing, are sick of the idea of talking about it. Hmm. Because they're aware that they're still earning a living. They're aware that if you drift into treacle-tasting uh, nostalgia, it can dull your senses. It can, it can make you subconsciously a little bit complacent, a little bit satisfied. If, if you or I or Martin, or we, if we go through a, a period of absolute intensity in our lives... We, we we draw breath and we go, whoa, I've done quite well there. Or that was testing. Or, God, I'm glad to see the family or go out with the lads or play five sides again. And the footballers don't do that. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. So you interject and you say, listen, would you would you like to drop back into talking about 2008, 2009, 2010? Will you leave me alone? No, I can. I don't want to stop. But you get off the merry-go-round and you fall over. It's it's like, yeah, look, those are old memories. Those are in the past. Uh, you know, I'll think about them, I'll talk about them when I'm an old man. But if you penetrate the shield and you get them to step away, as we did, into um, a training ground dressing room, into a hotel suite, at their house, in their office, wherever we recorded, a whole host of places, then what I think people will see when they watch Take the Ball, Pass the Ball is the players laughing with us, laughing and smiling and enjoying the memories and occasionally going, you can see their eyes, you can see their facial expression, you can hear in their voice and occasionally a little puff of, God, yeah. As as the armour plating comes off, the, the armour plating of today that they need, and they don't just talk about these things in a in a tabloid newspaper way, and, and you see them going, ah, oh, this is different. Yeah, that's right. It's like watching a, a wave of uh, acceptance and enthusiasm and you'll watch the players speaking and laughing and sharing in a manner that I think is a little bit unusual. When we watched the rushes back and then we watched the whole film back, we got a rush ourselves by looking at the way the players look at the camera or look at us and then talk to us because filmmaking is not, for my taste, an aesthetic process. We spent hours making it look good, making the lighting good, making the, the setup good. We edited it to, to try and make it beautiful. But it's about storytelling. And I think, and I, you know, I pray that we've allowed them to tell their story well. And it was them telling their story well that finally persuaded Pep to join us. 
Okay, let's move off um, from the movie Take the Ball Past the Ball with one last message from me, which is that if you're listening to this podcast, you have been following this story over the, the years. You might have even read Graham's book. And if you remotely fall into either of those categories, then it's a film, as I'm sure you already know, that you really have to see. Okay, let us cast our gaze to Sunday and the Clasco at the Camp Now between Barcelona and Real Madrid. Another reminder... Barcelona play into tonight, so there is a certain part of information that we don't have um, at our disposal just now. But I hope you all have read Graham's ESPN column on Spanish football across the seasons, but specifically the last one that he did on um, Real Madrid's current situation, which was probably the best forensic sweep on that subject that I read this week after they lost again, this time to Levante 2-1. The vibe of that piece of reporting was, OK, Florentino Perez might sack Julian Lopetegui, the manager of Madrid, but there are bigger problems at the Bernabeu than that. So last night, Madrid ended their worst run in, I think, nine years with a win in the Champions League, 2-1 against Victoria Plzen. But once again, this was a Madrid team that gave up a bunch of good chances. And it seemed to me to be a long way from the kind of statement performance that would necessarily change the temperature at the Bernabeu. Graham, is Lopetegui still in the same kind of hot water um, in which he appeared to be when you wrote that piece? If we're focusing on Julian, then I think yes. I don't think he'll survive um, in post. I think that, albeit we're recording significantly ahead of the a week's a long time in politics, 20 minutes is a long time at Real Madrid. <laughs> Even though we're recording, a, therefore, a century ahead of the, the, the Glasgow, I think he will be in post. That's not an opinion which is is fortified by Emilio Butorgeno, who's the vice president for public affairs, public relations um, at, at, at the Bernabeu, and, and an elegant, brilliant man who immediately I told him that uh, Neil Cooper had, had died this year, organised the club to send um, a letter of condolence to Petodri and to Neil's family. And Emilio is, that that's a microcosm of... What a decent, honourable, um, thoughtful, intelligent man who, you know, in his day was an exceptional footballer. Stands in the pantheon of certainly the top 15, 20 players to have performed uh, for Los Blancos. He said um, Lopetegui will be in charge, he'll be on the bench at the camp now. And I certainly believe that. But prior to him stating that, it was it was... It was crystal clear to me that what um, has been happening behind Julian Lopetegui's back is that the the president, Florentino Perez, has lost faith in Lopetegui as a figure, has lost patience with the performance and the results. But also, although I often have a a critical tone or or cast a critical eye at Florentino Perez, I, I am not his enemy and I have enjoyed a lot of the triumphs that his club um, achieved during his mandate. And, you know, albeit that I don't believe in it as a football model per se, there has been a thrill when you see him saying, I will capture Figo, I will capture Beckham, I will capture Zidane and Ronaldo, and doing so. And on many occasions, particularly in Mourinho's title-winning season and in, for my taste, the majority of the Zidane era, I've enjoyed it hugely. But when you when you are a guy who's a billionaire businessman 
you watch, at least I watch them, and they have a template of um, decision-making. But built into that template is I know. Yeah. I know. And he dipped into having a temporary um, coach maintained when he inherited Vincente Del Bosque. When Perez won the elections in 2000, Del Bosque was a temporary coach who just won the Champions League. So he kept him. They fell out, but... You know, that didn't stop the league title being won under Dabowski and the Champions League being won under Dabowski again. Um, look, at, when Zidane was appointed, it was with the sacking of uh, Rafa Benitez in mid-season. In, in, the decision was taken in late December, the sacking in, in January. A temporary coach who was far from first choice, in fact, was very nearly a last resort. Zidane comes in and wins in the title and wins three Champions Leagues. When a when a billionaire entrepreneur businessman like that sees temporary charges and he forgets about what happened under Lopez Caro and van der Luxemburgo when decisions were made made to bring in coaches who, who weren't right for the club and there was a spate of sackings and Florentino Perez himself had to resign or chose to resign. The dominant memory will be you can change a coach in midstream, bring somebody in and win again immediately. He's seen a constant flood of changes at Chelsea under Roman Abramovich and success being almost, it's like a restart button, re-initiar in Spanish. And he believes in that. And therefore, not just my instinct, but from... The people I trust who are around the club that I've spoken to, I don't think Julian Lopetegui is going to make it. And even if um, Lopetegui were to take his team and win at the camp now, which I thought was highly unlikely given the way that Leo Messi was playing, but with the absolute certainty that Leo Messi won't perform on Sunday night, Clearly, the, 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 the statistical calculation you make on the likelihood of Barcelona tucking Madrid away if they don't play particularly well changes. It goes down. So even if Lady Fortune is, is just, you know, blowing kisses and winking her eye at uh, Lopetegui, I honestly think that uh, Florentino Perez has calculated that he's either he's made a mistake or he's been badly advised. Um, He's a pretty ruthless man about what to do next. And the reason that I was sure before Botoqueño spoke, Neil, that Lopetegui um, was going to make it through Sunday is that the right candidate isn't available. I will tell you now, it's a fact that Florentino Perez has lusted after Joachim Lowe for quite a long time. I, Rather than stating it as a fact, I firmly believe that there have been conversations. Whether Florentino Joachim Lowe, I'd be willing to press the pause button on, but representatives of Florentino Perez and Joachim Lowe just saying, are you committed? Are you staying? In the past, I'm certain those conversations have taken place. And until now, Joachim Lowe has said, um, yeah, I'm, I'm staying. I'm happy. I'm content. Um, I don't know what his perspective on the current German setup is. I don't know whether the uproar about the players speaking out about what... Um, Uli Hoeneß has been saying about the DFB and their attitudes, uh, the DFB president and the current results. I don't know what Joachim Lowe feels about um, the next um, cycle leading up to the 2020 European Championships and whether he chooses to stay or not. But were he to either 
give the nod to Real Madrid and say, come and get me, or were he to quit the German job, he would unequivocally be the number one choice for Florentino Perez. People shouldn't be mistaken about that. I was speaking uh, yesterday to somebody who's pretty closely in contact with Antonio Conte, who told me that Real Madrid has been for a long, long time an objective of Antonio Conte's, that it is, to use a cliche, it's his dream job. Um, I don't think Conte, just as he was not aware of what he was going to at Chelsea, he was not aware of the current situation, the, the, the change in leadership and the change in ownership working practices of Roman Abramovich and hence the the way in which relationships broke down. He's not aware, I don't believe, of exactly what it's like to work and live at the at the Bernabeu and at Valdebebas. But right now until there is what's called in Spanish the finiquito, the the end of contract negotiations sorted financially between Chelsea and Conte, I think he's out of reach. That could change at any minute. He would be appointed if um, if he became free. And Real Madrid over the last few days floated a kite about Santi Solari. Um, I think Santi Solari, because of force of personality, because of his relationship with the president, is ahead of Guti in the pecking order to be a temporary uh, charge if they, if they dispensed with uh, Lopetegui until a senior coach was available. But the way in which the Solari reception um, across media, across people, particularly around his club, but also um, he takes counsel from George Mendes, he takes counsel from um, people who have supported him. This is Perez. And, and I think that people remember Santi Solari as a very, very talented Argentinian who joined Atleti and also played at Real Madrid and um, has been coaching in football Basse there for a couple of years now. And and therefore, uh, the reception to the Santi Solari idea wasn't so overwhelming that Florentino Perez f- believed he had a mandate to act immediately. And that is the reason that I think that f- for his sins, parole Julian Lopetegui will be maintained in post. You watch the Victoria Pilsen game. The way in which the goals went in didn't bring him particular relief, neither from players mobbing him nor from the reception of the fans, nor did it bring a wave of confident, fluid play, Neil. So um, I I think it was a significant step forward for whoever's going to be managing um, Real Madrid in the second half of the Champions League. But last night certainly wasn't... um, uh, uh, what do you call it when you get a little remedy in a bottle? It, it didn't solve um, an elixir. It wasn't an elixir for Julian Lopetegui, and I, I suspect it won't be on Sunday either. Okay, let's talk about why that might be the case after a short break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
And we're back. Okay, that's lots of Madrid, and it's so entertaining. It's so much more political and Machiavellian when we talk about the workings of that football club. I kind of get a kick out of it. <laughs> the stakes are super high for the visitors. What's the worst thing that can happen then? Is this a game in which Barcelona, sans Leo Messi, is capable of dishing out the kind of beating in this fixture that might force Florentino's hand in the immediate short term? Barcelona is capable of doing that if Romero don't turn up. There have been phases of games recently when I find it, for as much experience as I have, for as many times as I've talked to people about failing setups at big clubs, I have found it inexplicable, um, the level of focus and intensity and quality of decision-making that I've seen from Sergio Ramos, Thibaut Courtois, Rafa Varane, sure. even, to a lesser extent, Nacho, um, and Casemiro in particular, there have been patches when Benzema has gone from looking deadly and confident to looking a little bit floppy and disinterested, but he is far from the worst um, mm. sinner. And therefore, if all of those were to reoccur on a Sunday afternoon, which I can't believe because of competitiveness, because of personal pride, so therefore I don't believe it. But were they to reassemble all those bad um, displays that we've seen at Alaves, particularly, um, certainly against Leganes, but in a number of uh, matches, particularly away in Moscow against Siska, then even without Messi, Barcelona, if you give them a sniff, if you let them feel confident, if you don't break against them, if you don't mark at set plays, if you allow Luis Suarez the type of uh, space and um, ability to trick you, as, say, Morales was allowed uh, last weekend yeah. uh, for Levante, then, then you're in trouble. But is that the picture that I see? Not really, Neil. Because I think that there'll be a natural competitive instinct digging into Casemiro, to Ramos and Varane, does that take them to victory? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm struggling, apart from Roma, to think of one 90, or what they call now, 93-minute performance from where Roma did, where they haven't spent a considerable amount of time looking as if they're confused as to who they are and what they're doing there. And there has been sleepiness, or laxity, or um, complacency, and in almost every game, there were... Spells against Leganes, and let's not trumpet that too highly, given that it's Leganes. Um, there were moments against Atleti in the second half, and Roma was good. And for 67 or so minutes, maybe even 70-odd minutes against Atleti in the Super Cup, I thought they were blindingly good. I thought they were absolutely buzzing. It was the kind of football I'd pay to watch every week and everybody was up for it quick. And that's the effect that I don't really honestly expect them to see them playing that well, nor do they actually need to on Sunday. They need to build a platform. They need to make it not very easy for Boston to play. They need to suck them in and then they need to hit on the break. But against Atleti, which now looks completely out of context for the rest of their season, particularly the the embarrassing display in Seville, particularly for the first 55, 60 minutes. Pride yeah. um, got them through the tiredness of the lack of pre-season training against Atleti in the, in the UEFA Super Cup. 
and that will kick in. These are these are brutal, hard nosed competitors who don't come to the camp now to be humiliated. Um, they have a record in the last 10, 15 years of doing quite well at the camp now, in general, blips aside. Um, they find it easier and, and less pressurised to play there than they do the Bernabeu and the Classical. They tend to lose more Classicals at home these days. And therefore, you pointed out that you know, a, a drubbing, a humiliation would would open the door for Julian Lopetegui that night or the next morning. And all I'm saying is that if, if Madrid turn up as are playing as badly as they did in that first half against Sevilla or um, in spells against Alaves sure. for the majority of the Levante game, yeah, they'll be beaten. And if you give a Barca side, even without Messi, a sniff of a chance with the camp now howling them on, then... Fine, there's trouble, but I expect to see it aggressive, I expect to see it competitive, and I expect to see Julian Lopetegui saying to his players, suck them in and play on the break, at which point you've got Bale Benzema and Asensio completely capable of doing significant damage on the break. And what do we see week in, week out for Barcelona at the camp now? The the, the fact that I, I, I did a TV show yesterday stopping and, and pausing and analysing on the touchscreen, the way in which even Barcelona at their best, and they played some of their best football against Sevilla and beat them 4-2 last Saturday. They were broken against from Sevilla's penalty box upwards. Um, once when Arana hit the post, people who watched the game will remember, almost immediately after the, the opening goal for Barcelona, Sevilla went from box to box with clever passing, and two in particular, Benega, Silva, and then Arana, three, were, were outright unmarked, unpressed and free, you know, make devilment. And it was the same again for the beginning of the, the, the first of the double saves that Kostegin produced when Navas, the ball's gone from end to end and Navas crosses for Andre Silva to head for that brilliant save. That has been a pattern for Football Club Barcelona for several seasons now. It's getting worse because they are tending not to be able to control the ball as well, choke the game and therefore when the defence looks bad for Barcelona, predominantly, not exclusively, it's because they're 2v3 or 3v4 or sometimes 2v2. And no elite level team, Neil, ever wants to be played against with the other side breaking and your equal numbers 2v2 or worse 2v3. And, and Barcelona do that all the time. Remedied scouts will be saying if, if this is a situation that can happen to them against uh, Girona, and can happen to them against Sevilla like it did the other week, happened to them regularly against uh, PSV Eindhoven, despite the 3-0 defeat where Messi was utterly brilliant, then Madrid will be saying, we can do that. And, frankly, they can. You mentioned the two double saves from Ter Stegen there. I was trying to remember seeing a goalkeeper make two double saves like that in the same game. And it also made me think, You've been talking about the importance of this guy now for, for probably more than a year, and I know that you were surprised that he didn't start ahead of a rather rusty Manuel Neuer for Germany in the World Cup. Tell me a little bit about the importance of a guy who, let's remember, started his Barcelona career vying for that jersey. Yeah, I've, I've spoken to him a lot. I've interviewed him quite regularly. And, and if you look at the guys who were his inspiration, were his hero... It's keepers who have got much, much bigger frames than him, much, much bigger, or much more apparently much bigger personalities than him. Noisy, box commanding, but fearsome, physically fearsome, but also extremely, extremely good. 
um, Oli Khan being one, for example. And when he came, Mark andre Ter Stegen was a guy who evidently was bought because Zubi Zareta, the football director at the time, personally selected him, talked him through the move, persuaded him not to go elsewhere and said to him, this is what you should expect at Football Club Barcelona. One of the things that's given Mark andre Ter Stegen solidity at the camp now is that the briefing that Zubi Zareta, an ex-goalkeeper, a Champions League winner, gave him was pinpoint right, came true in every aspect and therefore very little of what's happened around him has shocked Marc-Andre Ter Stegen. I think that's important because keepers above all need mental, psychological equilibrium. You can have a maverick striker who might you know, ebb and flow in his concentration or his relationship with referees. His, <laughs> if you think about Samuel Eto'o, his relationship with just about everybody you can be up and down in that position, but you can't as a goalkeeper. Obviously, you sure. can't. So, Mark Andre Ter Stegen is somebody who I think is is, is extraordinarily happy in, in his city. He's a very quiet, very domestic guy who cycles the streets, walks the streets, lives in a neighbourhood of what they call um, La Zona Alta, which geographically is the higher part of the city, but also is meant to mean that it's the it's the in theory upper class part of the the city and he nicks around um his neighborhood savoring the culture going to the cinema going to restaurants in a way that the other players don't don't do and can't afford to do and some of the personality that I'm trying to describe and draw out um he's ultra ultra meticulous i I've been in one interview situation with him where he was like yeah, I don't care about the camera angles. And this is a guy who'd just been out training for 70 minutes in the sun. He said, look, I'm sitting here for the next 20 minutes and um, the sun's not bothering me, but I don't need to be, you know, exposing my body while I'm recuperating from training to any more extra heat. We must do this um, indoors. I'm, I'm just not doing it here. Wow. Which is fine. He wasn't, he wasn't complaining. He, he wasn't feeling the heat. He was like, this will affect how I recuperate from that first hour and a half after training, and therefore I, I must do this inside. Wow. That's a tiny little detail, but I love anybody who pays. And he sat there with a really calculating eye, looking at the shot, looking at the shadow. Even the shadow wasn't good enough for him. We do this indoors. Fine, mate, that's great, that's good. But I draw on that with little details um, being something that I think makes him the keeper we see. He's... Um, in my view, one of the better keepers in terms of using his feet. If I were a goalkeeping coach, I'd be asking him to blend a little bit of... Occasionally, when he uses the ball quickly with his feet, it's like, I don't really care if it comes back to me because I'll save it and then I'll just start the play again. I, I would like to see a little bit less sang froid about um, if I make a bad pass, it never matters. I know Pep Guardiola always said to uh, Jose Manuel Pinto, which is something he talks about in the film, and Victor Valdez, play the ball out from the back. Victor Valdez said that when I was told this, and I'm talking about the same thing that Mark Andrew Ter Stegen is asked to do, in the film, Victor Valdez said, the first time Pep told me all about this, I thought he was crazy. Didn't I thought he was talking Chinese. And Stegen plays that same way as Victor Valdez and is told... If you make a mistake, you we will not hold you culpable because this is the style we're asking you to play. But there are times when he, he makes, I, I think, passes which are like, I, I can make this look super elegant and I can make it look as if 
I just don't care um, if it comes back at me. And that's something I think he could top up on. Aside from what you are talking about, the thing that benefited him in the first season was that he was fighting for his place with Claudio Bravo. Bravo had um, the league and Ter Stegen had the cup and the Champions League. They won all three trophies. They worked well enough together without disputes, but it was competitive. And Mark andre Ter Stegen was the first one to say to the club, when you come to me re to renew, I won't be renewing unless I'm the number one goalkeeper. I want to be the league and Champions League, the cup, he wasn't so bothered about. And he won that battle. Bravo was transferred for big, big money. And it's been something that I think that until his realisation that he could oust Manuel Neuer, I think he missed that competition. I, I genuinely believe that although he's a regular trophy winner with Football Club Barcelona, absolute excellence came from um, the summer of 2017 when he went to Russia with Germany for the Confederations Cup, kept goal, uh, Neuer was injured, he kept goal brilliantly, won the tournament and set himself all of last year on ousting uh, Neuer. Went through a, a season where he didn't lose a game for Football Club Barcelona in the league until the penultimate match, um, which was a, a, a match of craziness where he made really no errors. And... I went into the summer fully expecting to be number one. It was an absolute mistake that Neuer was restored. I couldn't believe Jochen Lowe's decision-making process. It was it was a, just in terms of squad management, man management, and in terms of football choices, it was an error. And it's to Ter Stegen's great credit that he's taken that set back and said, well, I'll, I'll oust him now then. And that is from early August, I was told that the Germans' attitude was turn up be brilliant for Barcelona, try to win everything, yeah, but every minute of everyday intensity and extra work and focus that, that can make a good keeper great or a good footballer great comes from him wanting twin objectives, to win for Barcelona and to use that to unseat Manuel Neuer, which even in the recent uh, matches, there were I think they had Buggins turns, Ter Stegen I think had one game, Manuel Neuer had the other. I can't understand it. I think it's, it remains an error, and you saw the product of his intensity. You don't make it's the second each of the second yeah, totally saves. Exactly that. You don't make those saves unless every single day people will describe them as cat-like, agile, gymnastic, and think that it's just a moment of brilliance when the keeper's made a great save. His body's coursing with adrenaline. He's fit, young, and he leaps up, and makes the second save. Well, that's bollocks. You do that because in the training ground with a goalkeeping coach who's standing probably at the edge of the six-yard box, belting the ball at you once to left-hand side and then yelling at you abusively sometimes to be up off your knees or off your side and diving to the other side to make the second save. And they do that dozens and dozens of times every training session of every week so that it becomes automatic, habitual. You've listened to an upcoming podcast that we've got with David Priest and he talks about that, about... Keepers being in a zone whereby they're barely even aware of some of the things that they do that cause us to draw breath and, and gasp or to roar. And then to see them doing it twice, we think, well, that's genius. It might be. It's also automatic. And it's because they do it over and over again. And if you do it brilliantly and over and over again, then you, you produce performances like Marc-Andre Ter Stegen did against Sevilla to win the three points. Automatismos, see? Automatismos. Very... Impressive indeed. Automatismos is exactly... And you're robbing that from Xavi 
which I find interesting because they talk about the... It's become very on vogue at the moment to talk about the 10,000 hours to the extent that in the UK, where not all of our listeners are, it's it's almost become people are, are dismissive of that, oh, that 10,000 hours shite. It's funny how quickly that arc has gone from like people didn't associate muscle memory and repetition with excellence necessarily. Not everybody across the board, the elite, the performers did. And then it's become explained. And immediately something becomes explained now, it's tossed aside as, as being worth less, as if you've... I've chewed on that chewing gum and it's lost its flavour. Well, hold on. There's a lifetime supply of chewing gum before you toss it away. And um, Chabby talked about being taught over and over and over again with his peers about how to control, where you're looking, who to pass to, how to move, until you just do it again and again and again to the point that we're at 38. He almost scored the winning goal in the Asian Champions League last night and sent me a video of the keeper making a world-class save with a world-class expletive attached. That could have been a contender. (laughs) (laughs) He's Carl Malden and the taxi and Marlon Brando all all rolled into one, baby. Um, He's still your guy. Let's get to the other end of the pitch. You've, you've been watching Barcelona in the Messi era constantly. Um, let's just focus on the Valverde years where he's been the identifiable team leader. On the pitch, how does this Barcelona team change when he's not there? Do you know, I think there's something positive and something negative to say. Anybody with eyes who follows La Liga will note that very often... There's a stat which has been drummed out now, and I don't have it to hand, but I won't be far wrong, that... Barca win high 50s, low 60s in terms of percentages of games that Messi's not in. Hmm. Which is slightly higher than I expected. But the games where he's on the bench, particularly against a rival which will excel and raise their game and run Barcelona off their legs, you see something that I, I hate watching because... You know, I was a competitive bugger as as a sportsman. In life, I am to a degree. And when you watch everybody raise their shoulders in Blaugrana when Leo Messi comes on in a game where they've been struggling and he's been on the bench, you think you've been saving something, or you've you've subconsciously shriveled while he's not there. But you, and you think, oh, he'll come to our rescue. Now, I hate that seventh cavalry shit. I just I don't approve of it. I don't understand it. In games where they know he's not present, where they know he can't play. I think that, and this is just the joys, the depths of the human psychology, I think they approach it entirely differently. It doesn't mean that they'll win this classical automatically because they know he can't play and therefore their attitude will be spot on and they're not waiting for him to to, to run off the bench at half-time and score three. But what I do think is that there's an entirely contrastable, dividable mentality between... Messi's resting, he's on the bench, or Messi's out, we've got, to, we've got to focus, we've got to understand how we play, that we play differently, that that pass to the right, that that guy in space, that that Jordi Alba cut back, these are not going to be our principal go-to tactics. So I, I think we talk here in Spain about the tener la cabeza muy bien amueblado, so all the furniture in his head is, is well organised, a sort of mental feng shui. Um, I think... Uh, that Football Club Barcelona will, you know, patently miss the all-time top scorer in Clásicos. They'll patently miss him because he's been on just divine 
form since the season started with one blip against Leganes. And therefore, it's it's a giant incentive to, to Real Madrid. It's a decent reason to say Barcelona might not edge over the line against uh, Los Blancos. But will it automatically mean that they're not able to beat Real Madrid, that, they, that this messy dependency will show itself and that instead of losing one guy, they'll look as if they've lost three? I, I, I'm, I'm not of that opinion. I think that they will get their heads sorted out and the 11 men who take the pitch. If you're a football club Barca fan and, and you don't think that Coutinho and Suarez and Rakitic and Piquet and Alba might win you this match against an off-form Real Madrid, then, then you're a strange person. OK, let's talk about the 11 men that are going to take the pitch then. Give me the two 11s that you see starting this game and then let's just have a little look about where this match might be decided. Yeah, you've given me an out in that we record before Barca play Inter. So let's just say, barring injury, I'm I'm pretty sure of 10 of the names. It will be Ter Stegen, um, Sergio Roberto at right back, Piquet Longley, Alba. I think the, the midfield will be comprised of Rakitic, Busquets, Artur, and Coutinho, whether you want to call him left midfield or left high up, Suarez, and I, I think Dembele. I don't think guaranteed Dembele. I think there are options in that Rafinha could fit into left midfield with Coutinho, an out-and-out striker, second striker in behind Suarez, with Dembele on the bench to come on to a broken game. And I think that the thought patterns like that could become quite important to Valverde because Dembele, for all his talents, is somebody who Valverde regards absolutely as not only a work in progress, but with a lot of work left to do. Mm. Um, and therefore, a guaranteed starter against Real Madrid. Now, unless Dembele has played brilliantly against Inter and done his duties as well as maybe scoring a couple, if he's had a typical night, I think there'll be a temptation for Valverde to think very long and hard about a fourth midfielder, whether that be Vidal or Rafinha and Coutinho off, uh, off Suarez. Let's wait and see, but I think 10 of those names, um, the, the first 10 that I named, barring injury in midweek, will start. And for Real Madrid, again, I think there's a debate. I haven't seen it raised anywhere else. It's a personal point of view, and it's something I would do. I would drop Courtois and I would play Keylor Navas. Given that Courtois is a presidential pick, I'm not certain that he'll do that, but without any shadow of a doubt, it's how I would start my preparations for the Classical. Given that Lopetegui has nothing to lose, maybe he thinks the same way. But I suspect it will be Courtois, probably Nacho Varane, Ramos, and Marcelo Limptov. And he's been very injury prone um, over the last 18, 20 months. And therefore, whether he makes it or not, I don't know. If fit, it's Marcelo. If not fit, then maybe it's Nacho at left back and Odriozola at right back which would help the counter-attacking idea that I think is the linchpin of Madrid's chances of success at which point the midfield should definitely be including Ceballos who was left out in midweek and I don't think that there's a brilliant feeling yet between Lopetegui and Ceballos but nonetheless it should be Isco, Cruz, Modric Ceballos for me I would leave Casemiro out I think Casemiro is off form and I wouldn't play him but I think Lopetegui will 
Therefore, I think that it'll be Isco, Cruz, Modric, Casemiro, with two men up front probably being Benzema and Bale and Asensio to, to come on and break the game. I think will be the idea is Asensio could start if Isco's match fitness hasn't quite gelled as quickly as they would like. He's found the last two matches difficult after his appendix operation, but I believe it's, it's Isco, Casemiro, Cruz, Modric in midfield, Bale and Benzema up front, Asensio off the bench. Marcelo's fitness is a key, but if Marcelo is fit, he's a left-back, Nacho at right-back. And and the one big shout I would make would be to change the goalkeeper. OK, that is our show. Thank you so much for listening to it. Um, I can tell you we're back on Monday with a review of what happened in the Classico, and there are more big interviews on the way, of course. Graham Hunter, enjoy El Classico and enjoy the red carpet. I will enjoy um, the. It's a red and white carpet. Thank you very much. And I'll be singing about King Joey Harper as I walk down it. Neil, I very sort of typically, I think, refuse to get all stuck up and lord over um, having had a film produced. And therefore, I'm going to take this opportunity to say, in the big inside view, when listeners and socios sent in their questions, I was asked about the revelation team of the season. And I said, Espanol. And anybody who'd like to go and have a little look at La Liga's table today will say, what a wise man Bumper Graham is. What a wise man. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for season 2018-19. We've got huge creative plans for the months ahead, but we do need your help to make them happen. Please go right now to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and become a social, become a paying member and get an extra big interview every month plus loads of bonus content. Last season, socios listened to nine exclusive big interviews including Rafa van der Vaart, Troy Deeney, Roberto Di Matteo and loads of me talking about football. The Premier League, the Champions League, Spanish football. I'm sure they enjoyed it and you will too. Support us, join us. Thank you.